All right. We are children of God. Yes, we are. And as children of God, we get to come to Him and we get to explore this word that He has given us. And so for this week, our passage to go along with Psalm 59, this uh, story that David wrote this psalm um, about and to accompany is in, in 1 Samuel chapter 19, starting in verse 1. So I invite you to turn with me there. We're going to read from there um, and continue in and on in our story of David. And so we'll be in f- starting in verse 1 Samuel 19, starting in verse 1, we read this. And Saul spoke. Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. Oh boy. Well, we certainly started off in a very dramatic point of the story. So, let's take a second, let's pray, and let's dive into this. Dear Lord, as we explore your word, and as we are taught by it and taught by you. We ask for your Holy Spirit to be working in our hearts and our minds and our souls. Lord, may you be glorified in and through this worship and in and through our study of your word. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So, where have we been? Because it's been a couple of weeks since we've we've started. Well, we're, we're in the David story of David, and so David is most famous for David and Goliath. And so, starting back, kind of recapping from the beginning of where we started, David was anointed to be the next king of Israel because the current king of Israel, Saul, had stopped following God. And so God sought a king for his people that would follow him. And so he chose David. And then David came and, and, and he defeated the giants, the Goliath who blasphemed against God. And Saul, the current king, became very jealous. And he did not like David because the thing that Saul stopped following God for was so that he would become popular with the people. Saul's greatest desire was to be looked upon with favor, to have the people praise him. And instead of him praising God, which should have been where his heart's desire was, he wanted the praise from the people first and foremost. And so now that David was getting it, that made him very angry. It made him very jealous. And then as David, as we explored with Pastor Steve a couple of weeks ago, as David continued to have more success and to continue to grow in favor with the Lord and the people continued to praise him more and more. Saul grew more and more jealous and more envious until we get to this point where he has ordered Jonathan, his son, and all of his servants to kill David. Hmm. What can we do? When a power far greater than ourselves, when, when the ones in charge in, of the nation or perhaps of, of the group of people that we're in have ordered an innocent life to be ended. What power do we have? We don't have that earthly governmental power. And, and so we explore what's going on here. Because David hasn't done anything wrong. In fact, the, his only crime... In fact, he has no crime. He isn't, the only thing he's done is do what God has told him, has asked him. He's followed God completely. So what's going to happen when the king, the one with absolute authority, the one with all of his servants now on the chase, has ordered David to be killed, even though David is the next anointed one of God? What 
is going to happen. Well, let's continue reading. Starting and continuing on in the second half of verse 1 and through verse 7, we read this. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father. And he said to him, let not the king sin against his servant, David, because he has not sinned against you and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Now, this is interesting, this part right here, because Jonathan is referencing Deuteronomy 19, verses 10 through 13, which is a law by God which requires that anyone who has shed innocent blood by deliberate and planned murder be put to death. So Jonathan's saying to his father, why should you break the law of God for somebody who's only done good things for you? And Saul listened. And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David. And David report, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul. And he was in his presence as before. So here's Jonathan. And this is a pattern that we see repeated throughout the Bible many times. And most notably, perhaps beyond here, is in the story of Esther. But he's been put in a position where, without God's action being explicitly mentioned, God has acted to put him in a position as a faithful follower of God so that he can intercede on behalf of the innocent life being threatened. Specifically being threatened by the government, being threatened by the powerful beings, the men who have been given authority and power at that point in time. And Jonathan... Right, Jonathan, he's put in this position, but not only has, is he a faithful follower of God, and not only does he realize what Saul is, is commanding to be done as wrong, as violating the laws of God, but he also loves David. And he recognizes that David is one of God's chosen people. And so he intercedes on behalf of David. Notice that. Notice, notice what happens here. He's given this order. By the king, by the ultimate authority in the land, as far as man is concerned, concerned among men. And he doesn't sit idly by. He doesn't be complacent. He isn't complacent. He doesn't think, well, I know that's wrong, but I'm not going to do it. Therefore, if I'm not the one actively carrying out this order, therefore I'm innocent, right? I don't have any part in this killing of David. So if and when it happens, as long as I didn't do it, as long as I didn't actively participate in it, then I'm fine. No, David heard this order and he didn't sit idly by. He was not passive. He acted. He interceded on behalf of the innocent person, David. And he puts his relationship with his father, with Saul, with the king on the line in order to protect and to intercede on behalf of the innocent. And as you can read on in the next chapter, in chapter 20, just because Jonathan is the son of Saul does not mean that Saul will be lenient with him. 
Saul would have no problem, as he does later on in the story, with intending to take Jonathan's life for the, for the sake of him interceding on behalf of David, whom he's trying to kill. But notice when, jo- when Jonathan does this, when he intercedes, when Jonathan seeks to, to talk to Saul, to the one who's about to do something wrong, the one who's about to break God's law, he does it not as a, not as an aggressive voice, not as a condemning voice. He doesn't come to Saul and condemn him and tell him how horrible of a person he is. He comes to Saul out of love, out of love for his father and out of love for David. And he says, Saul, father, I love you. Why then would you do this? You know this is wrong. These are the consequences of what happens. And I don't want to see this happen to you because I love you. So don't do it. And he also does it because he loves the one who is innocent and he loves David. And so he says, Saul, listen, listen to what the voice of reason, listen to the voice of love here. And honestly, tremendously and, and, and in a way that perhaps we may not otherwise experience, Saul does. He does listen. John's intercession on behalf of David works. Clearly, there's something working here beyond just Saul's words and his own actions, but the Spirit of God is, is at work through Jonathan. And so what do we do? What do we do when we see innocent life being threatened? Well, taking the example of Jonathan and taking his action, we intercede on behalf of the innocent life. Now, this seems like a pretty extreme situation. As far as I know, I have never encountered or never been in a situation where I've known that someone intends to murder someone else that's innocent. I don't think I've been in that situation. Perhaps I'm wrong. But as we mentioned briefly at the beginning of the service, we are not unaware of the people around the world who are in this situation. So what can we do? How can we intercede? What? How can we intercede on behalf of the innocent? Well... As we talked about back in our, our series on spiritual warfare and studying Ephesians 6, and, and um, one of the most powerful things that we can do is prayer. Interceding on behalf of the innocent with the one who is in charge. Who isn't a man, but who is in control of everything. Interceding with, on behalf of them. But, but maybe there has been a time. Maybe there has been a time, or maybe you might be in, the, in your future in a position where... A life is in danger, or perhaps you're part of you have perhaps you're living in a nation where the government is threatening the life of innocent people. I think there's a lot of ways we could think about that in the U.S. in history, how the U.S. government has put innocent lives in danger, which means there will definitely be times in the future where innocent lives will be put in danger, where the government will be coming against those who are innocent. And threatening their lives. And so if you find, if we find ourselves in a position where like David, we have a relationship that we can, that God has, has put us into. He has put us into a position where we have a relationship and we have that relational capital and we have that access to someone where we can intercede personally on behalf of an innocent life. We are called to act 
on that. Not to sit idly by, not to be complacent, not to think that if I don't say anything, if I don't put any skin in the game, then I'm not complicit. Then I, I don't, I'm not, I don't have any guilt or, or, or anything um, coming back on me for, for the actions of these other people. No, if we see this type of situation, and it's extreme, right? This is an extreme situation. This may happen once in our lives, and for others of us, it may happen many times. I don't know. I don't know what your life looks like. I don't know what God is doing in your life. But I do know this, that when we are put in a position to intercede on behalf of innocent life, and we can do so out of love for the person that we know who might be the one perpetrating the wrongdoing, we are called to act, not to stand idly by. And again, this takes discernment. Jonathan knows God's law. He knows God's words. And he's a heart and a passion for God. And so to prepare ourselves to do that, we also must be thoroughly versed in God's law and his word and in his character and in his love. To know how to act out of that love and out of love for the person that we're interceding to and the person that we're interceding for. And so right now, perhaps what can we do right now from that position? Well, right now, we can dig in. Dig into God's word. Dig into who he is, who his character is, and what he desires for us. So that when we get to a situation where he is calling us to act, where he has put us in that position to act, to intercede, that we will do so without hesitation. Because we know so well the heart of God. Okay, so what if we're not? What if we are not in position to intercede on behalf of the innocent? Well, there's another situation that we could consider. In verses 8 through 17, we read this. So David had gone back into Saul's presence. Things were good for a while. Here we go. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. And so Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. And Michael took an image and took it, laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, he, she said, he's sick. And then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed and the pillow of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul. He said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Clever, Michael. Oh, man. But Saul, right, in the previous section of this passage, in those previous verses, he had taken an oath. He had sworn upon the name of the Lord that he would not kill David. And here he goes again, blatantly disregarding God blatantly disregarding the oath that he took upon God's name and seeking to kill David. And why? Because David 
David had success and the people loved him and David was, and Saul was jealous. Now here's one thing to think about and to, to really put this into context. Saul was made king precisely so that he would fight against the Philistines, that he would lead the nation of Israel against the Philistines. Yet when they are going to war, who is the one leading the Philistines? David. Saul's at home. Which foreshadowing here is the same mistake that David's going to make later on in his life and pay a very, very steep price for. But here it's Saul doing this action. And so Saul, shirking his responsibility, not going to war on behalf of God's people, therefore, at his own home, is making war within his own household. Instead of fulfilling his responsibility and fighting the fight that God has ordained for him, he creates a fight within his own household. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) But David's life is in danger again. And there's no person like Jonathan to intercede. Nobody in a position with Saul for Saul most certainly has gone around Jonathan to try to, to accomplish this desire that he has, because he knows Jonathan will intercede. He knows just Jonathan loves David now. <laughs> and so he's going to do it without Jonathan knowing so that Jonathan might not get in his way. And so who could possibly intercede? Well, nobody to Saul, but there is somebody that does intercede. David's wife, Michael. And we don't know what David was thinking. We don't know what he was intending to do. He knew he was in danger. Saul threw a spear at him. Clearly Saul's trying to kill him. He goes home. He relates this to to his wife and his wife, not being the one who's just had a spear thrown at her, can see things a little bit more clearly and says, what are you doing here? Don't stay here. He knows where you live. If he wants to kill you, he's going to come kill you. You need to get out, leave, flee. And here's one of the, the really notable parts about what happens here. Not only does she say this to him, not only does she speak the truth to him, then she helps him. She enables an innocent life. She enables David to get out of this situation. She puts herself at risk to face consequences from Saul, who's her father, by the way, by helping David, her husband, escape. This is very similar to the story of Rahab and the spies of Jericho, another Another perhaps more well-known story in the Bible, but back in in the story of Jericho, there were spies sent to understand and seek out the defenses of the city, and they were trying to escape the government forces, trying to kill them. And Rahab hid them in her house, covered for them, put herself at risk for doing so, and then let them out and let them escape through the back window. What can we do What do we do when innocent life is being threatened and we are not in a position to intercede on their behalf? Well, we intercede with them, if possible. And this requires discernment because this can be, this is such a delicate thing to apply. It requires a lot of discernment in how God is acting and how God is working on you and on us, on each one of us to intercede in these types of situations. When we see someone who is being wronged against, something is happening to them, somebody else is wronging them, and we see that they need to get out of the situation. 
we can intercede. If we're not able to intercede with the one who's wrongdoing, we can intercede with them. And now there's two, two kind of warnings, two types of, two kind of groups that I want to speak to. And so one, if you find yourself being more of a passive type of person in this situation, if when you see this more often than not, you hesitate to speak up, one, I want to applaud you because this takes great discernment. But two, I also want to implore you to act. In the example of Michael and of what Michael does here, she doesn't just speak to them. She doesn't just tell David, you're in a bad position, but then she also works to enable him to get out at risk to herself. And so if you find yourself being the person that you can recognize, you do recognize that somebody is in a bad situation. Perhaps they're in an abusive relationship and you know they need to get out. Talk with them, right? Talk with them is good, but also be willing to act upon that. Be willing to put your skin in the game. But then on the other side, on the other side, if you find yourself being perhaps a little bit more aggressive, right? You are one who is very much willing to jump into things, very much willing to jump into that situation and to help that person and to get them out. And that is your first reaction, right? I want to applaud your desire and your zeal to work and to help out the innocent, to help out those who are in danger, to help out those who are being wronged against. But my cautions are, my cautions are to take the time to pray, to work through this with God, and to have discernment over what the situation is. Discernment over how you can most lovingly intercede with that person. One, because there are definitely, there are times and that person may not want to be helped and they may not be willing to receive your help and you have to be willing to be continue to wrestle with that. But much more importantly and much more, uh, uh, let me say this louder and let me drive this home a little bit more. We are not the savior. In these situations, when we see someone, when we see an innocent life being wronged against, and when we are trying to help them know that you, me, all of us are not the Savior. We cannot save them totally and completely. And so, along with action, along with words, along with being willing to step in and to put some skin in the game, we must acknowledge and we must pray and we must intercede on behalf of them with the Lord because ultimately He is the one who can save them. And this next part of the story really drives that point home because even though Michael interceded, even though she put her skin in the game, she didn't ultimately save David. David flees. And here's what happens next. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. And Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And it was told Saul, He sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they also prophesied. And then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Sechu. And he said, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Nioth in Ramah. 
Then he went to there to Niath and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Niath and Ramah, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Whew. All right, there's a lot here. One, to take notice of just how powerfully God is able to work. Saul himself is going in person to kill David, and there is no one who can stand in his way. Yet God intercedes, and God saves the innocent life. He saves David. Now Saul, this is kind of, in a way, this completes the arc of of Saul's kingship. Because when Saul, at the very beginning, when Saul was anointed to be king, he went, he was, he went to Ramah at the very beginning. He'd been anointed, he'd been crowned king. And he went to Ramah and he prophesied the beginning of his kingship. And he followed God and he rejected God. And now he has fallen so far that he has come back to Ramah. And again, he prophesied. But instead of being crowned king, he is being stripped of all of his royal robes. Stripped of all of the outward and physical semblance of his power and of his position and of his favor with God. And so the one who is supposed to be the ultimate power in the land, the one who has um, and thinks he has the power to do as he pleases and to come after an innocent life, is put in place by the Lord God Almighty. And here's the beautiful application for us. As I said before, we are not the Savior. God is. He is the ultimate intercessor. He is the ultimate one who is in control. We cannot save someone, but He can, and He has. For as we've talked about this time, we've talked about interceding on behalf of an innocent life. Yet God, when He intercedes, when He saves someone, as He has on the cross, When he died for our sins, he interceded on our behalf, not because we're innocent, but because he made us innocent. For though Jonathan and and Michael were willing to intercede on behalf of David, on behalf of the innocent one, Jesus came and he interceded on our behalf. Though we were not innocent, Though we were very much guilty, though we were very much deserving of death. And yet he rescued us, saved us from death. And not only did he make us innocent in the eyes of the Lord. He also interceded for us when we became innocent so that we would not suffer eternal death, yet we would be given eternal life. So in this, what do we do when an innocent life is being threatened? 
And specifically in this terms, in this context, we're, we've, we've studied a lot how and talked a lot how it's an innocent life being threatened by the powers of the world, perhaps by a government, perhaps by those with power, with influence, with control. What do we do? Well, number one, we intercede if we have that relational capital, if we're put in that position as Jonathan was, as Esther is in the book of Esther. I invite you to go read that and, and, and hear that beautiful story to intercede as God has given us the opportunity to do so and to do so following him. But then if we're not in that position to intercede with, with those who are innocent, if we know the person, if we have a relationship, if we can speak to the person who's being wronged against that we can intercede with them and do so, do so in a way that isn't passive. Thinking that all we have to do is say something, but, uh, but being willing and following Jesus' example and putting ourselves at risk of facing consequences for it, but also not in being aggressive and in trying to be their savior, but in pointing them to the one who can and who does and who will save them. Because ultimately, what can we do when an innocent life is being threatened? Not a lot. But God, God can intercede. And through us, using our work, but ultimately through the work that he has done, he can and he will save so we are in that psalm psalm 59 that david had written in those first seven verses when he has those messengers surrounding him and trapping him coming after him and he's despairing and he's saying wake up lord don't you see what's going on and he declares and he confesses yes he does he laughs at them the lord is in control he is the one who saves But then he also pleads. He also pleads with the Lord, starting in verse 11. He says, kill them not. He's talking about the oppressors. He's saying, kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down. O Lord, our shield, for the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and the lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the end of the earth. When we are praying, when we are interceding on behalf of the innocent, let us not also forget on behalf of the guilty, for we were once the guilty as well. Interceding not that they might be killed, not that they may be destroyed, but that they might be humbled, that they may come to know God as well. As Jesus says, pray for your enemies. And so... (laughs) As we see oppression in the world, as we see governments coming over and against innocent lives, threatening those who have done nothing wrong, let us intercede with love for everyone involved. We do not fight against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against them. Our struggle is against the the powers and the principalities, the ones who would seek to destroy our soul. So for the humans on both sides of that issue... In both camps, let us intercede for both of them that all of us may come to know our Savior. Amen.